ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So, Susie Quattro, welcome. Um, this is a real pleasure because we have an incredibly tenuous connection. <laughs> yeah, get ready for this. I am. <laughs> ridiculous. Um, basically, I'm presuming you still live in that beautiful, I think it was on Elizabethan. Elizabethan uh, Manor House, yes. Yeah, I do. that's right. Well, if you come out of your house, I won't say anything about where it is. You no, come no. out of your house to the country lane, yep. you turn left, you go yep. down the hill, and yep. you eventually get to a point where it used to be three lanes that connect. You go across the humpback bridge, yes. turn right, yep. and that's where I lived. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're near the Green Man. No, okay, gotcha. Yeah, nobody knows. Don't worry. Wow. I was yeah. your neighbor, effectively. No, my, we moved there when I was about six in 1965. Right. And my dad tried to buy, because it was a derelict mansion, your property. Um, and my dad wanted to buy it. Now, he was a liar. So he, he only mentioned that after you'd moved in. <laughs> it wasn't derelict, though. Um, yeah. No, no. In fact, we bought it from a wine merchant and his wife, and they oh. raised their family here. And they were moving out. They actually loved this house. They didn't want to go. They 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 came into some financial problems, so they had to sell. But uh, I saw this house on the cover of uh, Country Life, and I fell in love with it. And we drove up. And this I've been here since 1980. This is my house. Oh wow! Well, I think actually that's good that you've been there since 1980 because I used to steal daffodils from the front. <laughs> This is I'm saying this. Yeah. <laughs> there is a statue of limitations on daffodils. So yeah, there is. There I is. Was like ten years old and and steal them because right at the front near the road there was all these masses. Yeah, of sure. So I it's, it's in the middle, middle of nowhere. You've got everything here. You got the orchard, the pond. You know, it's it's just a beautiful location. Anyway, absolutely. Um, yeah. Enough about my childhood. Now I want to. Um, talk about yours because you were brought up in Detroit and I want to talk about your very early childhood and really what sort of family atmosphere you were brought up in um idyllic really five kids Italian Hungarian family um we lived in a neighborhood where everybody was on each other's doorstep you know and there were many, many families with at least five kids. So it was that kind of a neighborhood. Um, music, all five kids, we all play. My dad played music all his life. So a show, every occasion. And um, we weren't rich. We weren't poor. I guess we were middle class. Uh, my dad did two jobs all his life. He was 
uh, obviously worked for General Motors. He either worked for Ford or General Motors in Detroit. And then at night he played music. So we never wanted for anything. Very close-knit, raised Catholic family. You, you've said before that your parents, or particularly, uh, yeah, your, that your parents were strict. Yes. What do you think you gleaned from your parents that has stayed with you over your life? It was mainly my mom. My dad was, because because my mother is my touchstone. She always has been. Um, she was very religious. She believes in God and Jesus and, you know, all that very much. So we were raised Catholic. And my mom was a very black and white, something's either right or wrong. And that's non-negotiable. So she gave me this very moral tracks for the rest of my life. Not that I, I'm not my mom. I'm not as good as a person as my mom. Sure, I've errored, but um, she gave me that to run down. So she gave me my moral code. That's what I thank my mother for. And that's everybody that knows me well and that knows her, they all say to me, you are your mother's daughter. So whatever she was, she definitely instilled in me. Yeah. And your father instilled music in a yes. sense because he was uh, a musician. Can you remember the first instrument you played? He gave me, um, I played bongo drums first. I was eight and my dad, I begged him for a pair and he gave, I, I pictured myself as a beatnik smoking a cigarette, reciting poetry and playing bongos. Um, I didn't move far away from that. Uh, I played uh, that first, then I played uh, classical piano. I took that for many years. Um, I'm a good player, actually. I've got a very good feel on piano. And then I started in the percussion section in the school orchestra. So I properly read, write, and play percussion and piano. And then at 14, when we started our first band, one of my sisters and me, everybody took an instrument. And uh, I didn't speak up quick enough. And I kind of said we were on the phones. I said, hey, wait a minute. What am I going to play? And my elder sister said, you're going to play bass. I said, okay. I, I didn't mind. You know, I already played two instruments anyway. And uh, I know I'm jumping ahead here, but I started on the story. So I went to my father at 14 and I said, we're starting a band, Dad. Do you have a bass? Because in my house where I was born and raised, we had everything. We had two pianos, two different accordions, one with a French tuning, which is slightly higher pitched, crazy, uh, an organ, full Hammond organ, a harp, full-size harp, ukulele, violin. Anyway, I said to my dad, do you have a bass? He said, sure. So he gave me for my first bass at 14. And any musicians listening to this will want to come and murder me, I'm sure. My first bass was a 1957 Fender Precision. Yep. And I've looked that up, and it's it's the bass that really changed music. And also, it was developed because Fender realized that the fuller sound you could get from a double bass is what they wanted to somehow incorporate into this bass, and that's uh, that's what they meant. If we're going to get kind of anal about this, I'll continue along that thought process. Standard bass is the bass. That's what bass was, you know? And then Fender developed this electric one. And that's why what you just said, still to this day, I don't know any other brand of bass. I don't know it. That you can go into the studio and you could plug it directly into the soundboard. No amp. And it's perfect. And it's the closest to a string bass that you can get. 
you know, and I didn't know, I, I don't pretend I did. I didn't, uh, all I did was ask my dad for a bass and he said, here you go. I thought, okay, here's what I have to learn. I had no idea that there was a choice of bass guitars. I had no idea that there was a lighter bass guitar or a smaller neck. I didn't question it. Why would I? Oh, here's my bass. And so that's why I ended up being such a good bass player because not knowing it, I learned on the hardest one, but I didn't know it was hard. I just thought, okay, here's what I have to learn. You know, what a, what a blessing that was really, you know, I tackled that the hardest one. And I became a really good bass player. When I played slightly smaller necks, I was like lightning. So I was like, oh, there's this, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. I'll come back to the bass in a minute. And you said you've jumped. There was an event on the 9th of September, 1956. Um, and you're all sitting around the television. And I've watched that yesterday because I wanted to remind myself, even though I'd seen it before, I hadn't seen it live. And I sort of read some facts about it as well. 82% of the viewing public in America was sitting around their television those days for that particular show. And Ed Sullivan didn't actually present that one. Charles Lawton did because Ed Sullivan was ill. And yeah. Ed Sullivan actually didn't want Elvis on his show. And eventually, because Elvis had become successful, he had to pay him 50 grand for three separate um, yeah. performances. But that night, tell me what it was about Elvis's performance and charisma and how he came out of that tv screen because it is an amazing piece of footage when you look at it oh yeah i mean there are certain pivotal moments in your life this this was one of mine and even every time i tell this story it's it's unbelievable you can't make this stuff up you can't make it up so i was five and a half my eldest sister by nine years was 14 and a half so she was exactly the age to Love Elvis Presley. I was only five and a half. That's very young. And he came on and he started doing Don't Be Cool. And I remember, never forget it, my older sister screaming. Now I'm only five and a half. And I looked at her and I went, what's the matter with you? You know, why, why are you screaming? And then I turned to the TV and I went into it. I can't describe it any better than that. I sort of like, ooh, drawn in. And then my little child brain the thought came through and never left me i'm going to do that it never occurred to me i was a little girl and he was a man i didn't even look at gender i just knew something in me went boing i'm going to do that and that stayed with me my entire life and there well, are many many reaction that he got was Sorry? it about the reaction that he elicited or was it more about the person and the performer what? Because you mentioned about your sister screaming, and I just wondered exactly what it was. Um, for me, it was a, how can you say it? I felt it was my destiny. I had that feeling at that age, that, and that's the craziest thing about it to me, that I had that feeling. There's just something about him that whatever he was doing, or he was looking, the moves, and I just went, yeah. It's like, it's like I, saw, I was part of him. I can't explain it any better than that. But to have that at that young age, it's nothing you can even articulate at that age. All you can do is remember how you felt. And he has stayed with me, and I don't want to go into it now. There's like nine or 10 epiphanies that have happened that you can't make up from him. So it was definitely a calling, you know, 
And, um, oh. Did you ever have an opportunity to meet him? I did. <laughs> okay. I'll run you through these briefly because it's important. So that was my first Elvis epiphany. Okay. So now you flash forward to uh, 1968. I've been in the band for four years. And we were, God knows, somewhere in somewhere in a hotel room. And that comeback special came on. So I was watching that naturally, like a lot of people were. And I decided after watching that, that I would wear leather. Thought, oh, that's, yeah, I obviously have to wear that. So it was just natural. I'm going to wear that. And I went out and bought a leather jacket the next day. So that's the next epiphany. Uh, then 1973. I'm, oh no, sorry, I'm forgetting one. Uh, 1971, I'm in Detroit in the band and I had taken a back seat because the pleasure seekers that I was the front person to had changed form and they wanted to get heavy and write their own material and I took a back seat and I mainly just played bass. Usually I was up front with the bass doing 99% of the singing, went back a bit. Mickey Most from England came to see that band. Uh, I went up for two songs. One of them I wrote, and one of them was Jailhouse Rock. You can't write this stuff. Then I, I went back again, and after that, Mickey went, come here, took me to England. Solo artist. I left the family, solo artist. 1973, is making my first album. And we decided that, you know, everybody knew, big fan, big, big fan, more of a fan, more than a fan, more like I belong to him, you know. And we decided to do All Shook Up. So then 1974, All Shook Up was out in America and uh, it's in the lower end of the charts and I'm in Memphis and the phone rings. You can't make this stuff up. And it's Elvis's people. And before I could gather my thoughts, he was on the phone. And he just, you know, he said, um, I've heard your verse. He said, this is Elvis. Like I didn't know you can hear in the voice. He said, um, I've heard your version of All Shook Up, and I think it's the best since my own. And I'd like to invite you to Graceland while you're in town. So me being me, I followed my instincts. And I wasn't scared. I wasn't ready. And I said, I'm very busy right now. Never knowing he was going to pass away. And then we'll finish, start so we're finished. 1977. I flew from uh, Tokyo to Los Angeles to audition for Happy Days, okay? So I went in, met everybody. I played at the Tuscadero for three seasons. Went in there, met everybody. And then they said, okay, great audition. Go back to your hotel room. We need to discuss you and we'll phone you. I said, okay. So I went back to my hotel room, walked into the room, turned on the TV, sat by the phone, waiting for them to call me, okay? Um, the phone rings. It's them. And they said... Uh, congratulations, we don't just want you for the two-part episode. We'd like to sign you up for 15 episodes. And as I'm going to be happy, the TV flashes, news flash, the king is dead. The, the same time. Now, you can't, I keep saying it, you can't write this stuff. It's amazing. Then I uh, came back, that was August, obviously, the day. I came back, uh, I think it was December to film my first two episodes and the director brings up a man and he said Susie I'd like you to meet this guy his name is Nudie I said hi he said he's going to be making your clothes for the show I said okay he's Elvis's personal tailor 
How does this happen? Okay, I'm coming to the end now. Then I wrote my tribute song, and you have to play it. Um, it's become a cult hit. Elvis imitators do it. It's played at funerals. It's called Singing with Angels. There's a, a video clip of it on YouTube. Um, I wrote this wonderful spiritual song about him, and I wanted to record it in Nashville. It was Andy Scott suggested it. He said, that's just too good. So I got a hold of James Burton and Ray Walker from the Jordanaires. And I said, I have this song. And they both said to me, oh, Susie, we're inundated with tributes. But tell you what, since it's you, send the song. So I sent the song. Within a day, James called. He said, book the studio. And Ray Walker said, that's the best version. That, that That's the best tribute song I've ever heard about Elvis. So we went to Nashville and we recorded it uh, with the original Jordan Harris. Even Gordon Stoker got out of his hospital bed to come and do this session. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, and then the, the final one, I think it's the final, you never know, was we took a little break on that recording and we were outside James Burton and I, you're talking and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on my new album. And I, get, I said, would you like to hear it? But he said, sure. So he was walking around outside. We had a little break with headphones on, listening to rough mixes of my new album. And he stopped. This, this is what I'll read. This is what I take to my grave. He stopped and he said, Susie, I got to tell you something. I said, what? He said, you got what Elvis had. I went, what? What? I don't even care if you're lying. What did you say? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the only way I can explain it is whatever you do is you. So however he related it, he related it. So my feeling at five and a half to me made sense with that comment. It brought it full circle. So there's my Elvis stuff. You know, you can't you can't make it up. I just feel like I know him and I know from his, his last girlfriend that he used to go sit in the top room at uh, Rodney Bingenheimer's English discotheque. They had a VIP room. And she said he would, cause he was a huge Susie fan. So he'd play my music all the time, Rodney Bingenheimer. And uh, he, he said, uh, she said, Elvis would look at all the posters and listen and just look, you know, nothing sexual, just look. So he must've thought, he must have felt the same way I did. There was a kindred soul somewhere in there, you know, somewhere in there. So, wow. <laughs> now that's lovely to have that connection. I mean, obviously the Beatles also played a big role because if you look at the the Pleasure Seekers, it was almost in that, that sort of form of the Mersey Beat uh, type music. So when did the Beatles come into your life and, and how did that manifest itself? That was the same television show, The Ed Sullivan Show. And, you know, at the end of the uh, at the variety show, that was essential for every American family. We all sat down and watched it eight o'clock Sunday night. Ed Sullivan, um, he says, he said, you know, he always used to bring on something for the youngsters as the last thing. So on came the Beatles. They did. Uh, she loves you. And I want to hold your hand. Everybody screaming. And we all jumped to the phones, called two sisters that lived about a mile away. And the girl two doors down, her father played in my dad's band. Um, and we're all excited, excited. All oh, the Beatles, did you see that? Blah, 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 like, like you do. And my Patty said, hey, why don't we start an all girl band? Oh, yeah, what a good idea. And that's where I told you earlier when I everybody went, oh, I'm playing guitar and I'm playing drums and I'm playing this and I didn't speak up. So I got left with the bass. And that was the biggest favor that was ever done to me. Wow. 
because, you know, when I strapped it on, it was like perfect. Can you remember your first performance? And was the bass a sort of protection in terms of Susie Quattro as a person and Susie Quattro on the stage? Because you know what it's like. I mean, I worked, I, I was a presenter on MTV and I used to have to wear makeup to go on camera. And for me, the makeup was a protection. It was like almost sort of saying, okay, then I am now Steve Blame. I am not, you know, the original person behind it. I'm actually a little bit different. And it and it was a form of protection. So was the bass a protection for you? No, I don't think it was, but uh, it's an interesting question. And I can answer it by saying that when I wrote my autobiography unzipped, I wrote it in two people, but they're both important. And they're both me. I wrote it as Susie Quattro and I wrote it as little Susie from Detroit. And I've asked many people this, is that me or is that a thing? Susie Quattro is me and there is two things, but I do separate. I try to keep little Susie right where she is with her feet on the ground. And Susie Quattro is the public part that goes out and performs. I didn't need protection. I, I remember doing the first gig. We knew three songs <laughs> and looking down at the audience and what ran through my mind was I'm home. You said that in that band, you, well, I you didn't say it, but you moved in terms of that band into the, into the front, into being the singer and, and, uh, and the front person. How did your sisters react to that at that time? You know, it's my theory that whoever is going to be the front person in a band, they don't become it so much as the audience chooses it. They tell you. I was aware, even when I was a little girl, and we did our family shows, and everybody did a sketch or played the piano or did a dance or whatever. I was always aware from about seven onwards that when I got up to do whatever I was going to do at the family show, the room stopped and they watched me. So I was aware as a child that I had the ability to hold an audience, which is important in your development as an entertainer. So that all just happened naturally. I was just given every song to sing and I was the one with the pizzazz and the, it just was in there, you know. Um, and I remember one particular, another pivotal moment. About, I was about 15, 16 we were on the road, we were playing and we didn't have roadies then. So we were setting up our equipment and my sister's first husband and we're setting up the lights and dragging all the equipment and all of us girls. And he stopped as we were setting up the lights and he said to the entire band, you do realize girls, of course, that all the lights have to go on Susie. Things not to say. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, what? Well, in my defense, I didn't say that. I didn't expect them to say that, but it was said and nobody argued. I mean, not all the lights, but I guess he met the majority. So it was it was my destiny, and it still is, to be a performer. It's a very natural thing for me, very natural. One thing that I find very fascinating is when you say that it was said to them and no one said anything, no one... You know, no one complained or or said why is she because you know getting all the attention yeah. and all this sort of all this sort of stuff. Um, I was brought up in a family where we we didn't really communicate with each other, not honestly, 
not really upfront. Do you know what so I mean? Barriers. Was more about, barriers. Yeah, it was more about how the food tastes and all that sort of stuff, but it wasn't actually very direct and honest. Would you say that was the same with you then, that actually those honest com- conversations that you have more as an adult didn't really happen during the childhood? Um, no, I wouldn't say that. We were a very loudly communicative family he who he who screamed got heard and everybody was always very very opinionated everybody very opinionated everybody very honest we always talked i would say there was an acceptance of what each person had and i will also say that for some of the members who wanted to be famous those are the ones that found it difficult. My brother had no problem with me. My little sister had no problem with me. My eldest sister, Arlene, had no problem. But but Patty, and she hates me saying it, but it is the truth. I love her dearly. But she did want, because it was her idea to start the band, she did want to be in the position that I am. And I think it graded on her more. We have talked about this millions of times um, and never really got to the conclusion. But but the unfortunate thing when you have a family like that is when you want the same thing and it happens for one and not the other. And my answer is always the following. And again, the audience chooses, not me. She had the same opportunities as I did. Mickey could have come to, De- could, to, could have come to Detroit and saw her and said, come with me. I want to make you a star. Nobody took anything away from her. I followed my road. So that that's my answer to that. No, Nobody can take anything away from you if it belongs to you. Nobody can. We all have our destiny. I see you got me on my platform now. I firmly believe in that. But it's a shame you didn't communicate because I think communication is everything. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I found out some years ago that um, my father didn't want a third child. I was the third child. And when I was born, he had nothing to do with me and didn't show any love and wasn't around. And I believe I I know this, you know, might sound like home therapy. I've been in therapy a lot, but it does sound a bit like that. But I think it's true that I believe I ended up on television to get the love that I didn't get from my father. And I just wondered whether you'd analyze where your drive came from because you're an incredibly driven person. Oh, ridiculous. Um, I understand yours 1 million percent. Uh, I can explain it this way. With five kids, there are no parents in the world that can divide it equally, the love. And because I was kind of, my husband calls me Cinderella. I was kind of the dark horse. I think everybody saw that I had this kind of talent, but nobody actually nurtured it, except by just watching me and applauding me. They did that. But um, yeah, did I go into, I don't, I didn't go into it because of that, but certainly that helped me as I was becoming the entertainer that I am. I still find that getting, getting an audience going is still, it's like, it's like I've won the lottery. And I never ever go out there with an ego. I go out there with a need, which is wonderful. You know, I just want to please everybody. So yeah, that definitely had a lot. Being being one of five and needing 
that extra bit of attention. See, that's what you also got to ask yourself. Okay, maybe your dad didn't have a lot to do with you, but did you also have the kind of mindset that you needed a little bit more? Because I'm an, uh, honest enough to say I needed a little bit more. And you can argue the toss that it's because you didn't get it, but then again, you could be wired the way that you need it. So it could be a bit of both. But whatever your dad did or didn't do, God bless him because it ended up fueling the adult. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where I think that all those things that happen in your past and uh, are, if they take you in the right direction, are very, very valuable. And most creative people in the world have things, I think, in their past that have moved them to that direction. I want to get back to the base, because one thing that really fascinated me when I did the research, because I'm not musical in this way, but how difficult it is to sing and play the bass together so can you can you tell me that because i really didn't understand that before i saw that in an interview with you yeah it's it's true it's true i mean i've been told this my whole life but you know i got lucky in many respects first of all i played percussion so you're using all your thought patterns feet hands but that's all being used simultaneously playing piano two hands then I learned the bass, but at the same time that I was learning the bass, I was learning to be lead singer. So I didn't question, is this difficult? I just was doing it. And there's, um, and, and it usually is where you have to play the bass and not think. You have to get your bass part worked out. Don't think about it. And then you start singing without, once your bass becomes automatic. There was like two or three songs in my entire 58 year long career that I had to practice the bass and singing because the bass line was contradictory, so contradictory to the melody. Hardly ever happens. Every now and again, something throws up like uh, she's in love with you. That's got that boom, you can't move, don't move, don't move, don't move in the vocal. You see you're all alone when I walk up to the street behind it. So this has got to go like a machine and the vocal has to lay back. And once I got it, I never thought about it again. But that one is hard. And I, I would say to anybody, try to do that. Try to lay your vocal back a measure behind nearly and play that machine-like bass. So yeah, there are some, but because I learned them both, it was never a problem for me at the same time, I mean. When did you realize that the bass was a phallic symbol because you were very young when you started playing? <laughs> no, it is because you are, you are the first female cock rocker. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I don't know. I guess when I've started to wear it a little bit lower and then I realized it was just right there. <laughs> I don't know. It is a phallic symbol, I guess. Cock rock, yeah. Uh, Yes, a lot of people that that I'm close with, they always say to me, you you look, and I think it's right when I see pictures, you look like you were born with a bass in your hand. It's very natural to me. And it is sexual. Uh, rock and roll is sexual. With that, but not if you try. Not if you try to make it sexual. It's sexual because what it does to you as you're playing it. I'm a firm believer in that. You don't think, oh, I'm going to move like this. It moves you that way. It's, it's, it's non-thinking. Rock just does that to you. That's the great thing about it. It's an animalistic music, isn't it, really? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you mentioned Mickey Most. Now, Mickey Most, of course, as, uh, as uh, I know full well, that in, in that era, he was the producer. He was a really big yeah. 
uh, guy, a really big producer. Um, you were a young woman. You were, I think you were 19 at that time. 21. I was 21 when okay. I arrived in the UK. All right. How concerned were you when you met him that he had the right intentions? Um, I knew who he was. I was a huge Donovan fan and a huge Animals fan, which I told Vicky many times. I said, Donovan was your best production ever. He agreed with me. And he called me to the back of the hall. And he said he wanted to make an album with me. And it was the, it was just the way he said, it. I had had an offer the same week from Electra Records who saw the band. And they also said, we'd like you solo. Nobody wanted the band. So that tells you everything you need to know. And the uh, president of Electra said, we want to take you to New York and put a male band around you and, and make you the new Janis Joplin. And Mickey said to me, I want to take you to England, make an album with you and make you the first Susie Quattro. So he saw that I was not like anybody else. I never had any doubts about Mickey's intentions, never. We understood each other from day one. It didn't come very easily though, did it? You landed in, in Britain and you were in a, a bed sit on your own for a year and things weren't uh, really happening and the music that was being produced wasn't really the stuff that, that you wanted to make, I, I understand. So. What happened in that first year and how was it being away from your family, away from your roots, not really knowing anyone in in Britain and also jumping into something that had this, you know, like dream, but wasn't quickly realized? Um, I always call that my paying my dues years. <laughs> I arrived with big hopes and dreams and then we went through about, well, it was like, October 71, I had my first number one in 73. Um, Mickey floundered with me. He produced some stuff with me, but he, and he's the first to say this, bless him. He didn't know how to record me. We were looking for who I was going to be, basically, both of us were. So I was writing, we were recording, trying this, trying that, trying that, nothing really gelled. And I was on my own. I didn't have any money. I was in a little tiny room, um, walking every day with my, extremely heavy bass from Earl's Court to London and back again, weekends alone. Not an easy time. I used to cry myself to sleep, but never once did I think about going back. Never once. Um, we were looking for me. And finally, I said to Mickey, I'm used to being in bands. I'm used to playing gigs. I'm dying here, dying. I need a band. So he said, okay, get a band. I got a band. Then things started to make sense. So we started rehearsing the band. Mickey got us some college gigs. Uh, we were doing all original stuff that I was writing. So the, the, the form is trying to take shape now. And uh, then Mickey put us on the first ever nationwide Slade tour. I was the opening act. I got, I was an add-on. I didn't have any success yet. It was me, the Thin Lizzy and Slade. And that band, our, my little band got really tight. And then we came back from there and I then knew who we were, you know, we're doing all my own songs and they were boogie based, which is can the can. And Mickey had just signed Chin and Chapman. And he said, do you mind if I see if they maybe can write you a hit? So they came to a gig and they listened to all the original material and they went away and they wrote can the can and then as they say the rest is history but that that just cemented everything in and then 
Mickey said after we recorded that, he said, you got number one here. He was sure of it. And he was right. And then he said, now we need to have that discussion about your image. I said, right. I got the band, got the, got the song. He said, what do you want to wear? And I said, leather. And he said, no. I said, yes. He said, no. I said, yes. He said, no. He said, it's been done. And I said, not by me. And so he saw he was not going to win. And he said, okay, okay, leather. He said, uh, and then he went quiet for a minute. He said, how about a jumpsuit? I said, yeah, what a great idea. Because I can jump around and everything will stay in one place. I, in my naivety, I swear to God, I had no idea that it was going to be sexy. I just thought it was sensible. And it's so funny how it turned out. When I got the pictures back, I kind of went, oh, <laughs> oh dear. Those, those Mankiewicz pictures were, what was incredible about them, it wasn't just that it was a very sexy image and the jumpsuit and everything. It was the dominant female in amongst a group of males, wasn't it? That was part of it as well. And I, I mean, I'm a gay man and I remember watching Top of the Pops and when you first came on and I was like, wow. Like, what is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Because yeah, it was yeah. completely new and original and it had a power to it that you have as a human being, it's clear, but it had a real power to the image and to the music and to the person. Well, you know, in the metamorphosis that, that became Susie Quattro, you know, you've got that, or girl, you got the, the the person joining the band, being up front and putting in the back. And, you know, so going from front person to really good on bass and all these things, mixing around, mixing around. And the struggle in London, being on my own, which really toughened me up in a way and really made me, I'm making it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. And then I remember standing um, in the studio for that photo session. So I've got my first jumpsuit on, got the band around me. And Garrett Mankiewicz is standing over there with his camera, can the cans playing in the background. And I never, another pivotal moment. I remember him saying to me, okay, Susie, give me that Susie Quattro look. And I swear to God, all of a sudden I had one. And it was so, I didn't think about it. I went, boom. So all of a sudden that emerged. Without me, I didn't, you know, it wasn't planned. Okay, I'll do this. And it just happened. And when you see that picture that captured that look, I was Susie Quattro all of a sudden. Crazy. I look at it now, and it was that, you know? Wow, what a moment. And so I mean, there was success was a long time coming, but it was overnight success in the end. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, people always talk about overnight success. <laughs> overnight, you know, nine years overnight. But it comes at a moment. That's the point I'm trying to make. How did you deal with that sort of attention and fame initially? Well, you get your, you should all go through the, the long night of the ego. That's important. Um, Cause if you don't pass through it, then you've, then it stays with you. So we hit number one. I tried to go out to the pub after top of the pops. We got mobbed. Yeah, what, you know, what? And um, you know, the record company had a case of champagne delivered, blah, blah, blah everything, phone calls, interviews, you know, spotlight. And I remember going through 24 hours of thinking I was the best thing since sliced bread. I remember it. And then I woke up 24 hours later and I remember waking up in the morning, looking in the mirror and I went, you idiot, it's just you. And I sat down at the kitchen table. We had a little flat, my ex-husband and I, he was my guitar player. 
And uh, he just looked at me quite cleverly and he said, oh, welcome back, Suze. <laughs> so, so I never did that again. It was just like a little rite of passage that you have to go through. Okay, enjoy this. Think you're wonderful. And then it's like, okay, here's reality. And I don't run on ego. I never have and I never will. Um, just because I'm successful at my chosen profession does not make me better than you. And I don't ever think I am. I actually have an ego room in the house up on the third floor, a separate room for the ego with a sign on the door, ego room, mind your head. So that's our, and I'm very much, you know, you, you're talking to me because I'm very much feet on the ground. Uh, I love what I do. I take great pride in what I do. I know I'm a good entertainer. I know I'm a good musician. I know I'm talented. You can know that. It doesn't mean you have to lead with it, but it's called self-belief, being comfortable with the talents you do possess. And I just thank God I've been allowed to be successful at this and continue for as long as I've continued. Thank God. The documentary that was made about you, Susie Q, is such a beautiful documentary. And um, I read a story, and I don't know where, where where I read it. I copied and pasted it and then forgot where I read it. And it was you talking to a friend, is it Michelle? No. Is it you talking to a friend about going into the film? And yeah, and yeah, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah, I can tell you that story. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, because I don't have an agenda. I'm not a girl with an agenda. I kind of just follow my instincts wherever it might take me. I don't question, oh, I'm a girl. I shouldn't be doing that. I don't even do gender. I've never done gender, which is why I could look at Elvis when I was five and a half and not do gender. Um, I never knew that what I was doing was groundbreaking. I didn't know. I really was just being me. And no matter if anybody tried to change him, or Mickey tried this song and it did right, wouldn't you? I'm me. I'm who I am. Maybe I don't make it because this is so off the wall, but I'm me. And I went into the first premiere of Suzy Q at Legends uh, Regent Theater. So I'm booked in to go up at the end of the film and do a Q&A with the audience. And I really wanted to see this on the big screen with an audience. I wanted to feel, because that's how you really see something, you know, feel what they're feeling. So I snuck in. Snuck in. A couple of people saw me. I went, shh, shh, shh. snuck in, standing on the corner, watching, 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 crying. All these girls, I, you got your Debbie Harrys, your Cherie Curry, your Kathy Valentine, your Katie Tunstall, Joan Jett, um, Chrissy Hind. I go on and on. Um, they're all saying, they're all coming on and saying basically the same thing. I paraphrase it now, that if I hadn't have done what I did, they would have never considered picking up an instrument because they didn't think it could be done. So I'm in tears. I'm in tears. I had to dry my eyes and go on stage, but I was really affected by that. I never realized until I saw that amount of women coming on stage onto the film and talking like me about that. Then I went, oh my God. So I got home. Then the next day I called my friend Cherie from the, from the Runaways. She's a good friend now. And I told her the story. And uh, I said to her, Sheree, I just realized something. She said, what? And I said, by me doing what I did, I gave women permission all over the world to be different. And she, there was a big pause. She's in California. And she went, and you just got that? <laughs> Which is 
one of my favorite one-liners in the world because it was like, you idiot. I said, yes, but isn't that, isn't that kind of refreshing? You see, I did not have an agenda. This is why it was me that it fell on as the fates decreed. It was me that was fated to be the first woman to do this, to have worldwide success, playing an instrument, leading a rock and roll band, uh, because I didn't know I was doing it. It's a whole different attitude than going out there and thinking, okay, I'm a girl, watch it. It's a different attitude. I didn't go out there like that. I went out there just being me. So I'm a natural. And it had to fall on somebody like that. That's my looking back on it in hindsight now. I mean, what made me really happy is exactly that. It was like you got the confirmation from people in the industry that you also look up to, who look up to you. Yeah, sure. You confirmation for them for what you really achieved and had done in your life and for that it was an incredibly touching thing in in this it's in this film of something that i'd always thought yeah if someone mentioned susie cotter it's always oh yeah she broke the glass ceiling yeah yeah, yeah. you know that was something that uh i'd always known but it was funny to see it in the film to really get that confirmation coming through from other people and so it must have been a a really beautiful thing for you oh absolutely humbling and if i take anything to my grave i take that you know well wow. it's just one a- thing that's a- very sad in that documentary and, and it touched me maybe because of my past was that that cassette that your father had sent you and I'm, I, I know I'm bringing it up and it probably is a horrible no, thing no it's fine it's fine okay. I don't know but it, for me it was like my God, the thing that shocked me, first of all, the, tell me what was on it, because then I can talk about it. Um, they, you know, they had a Thanksgiving dinner and I call it the Thanksgiving tape. And I wasn't there. I was in England and they sat down and my daddy started to tape the conversation at the table. And then he led the conversation at the table. Um started to talk about what do you think about Susie getting signed and that kind of thing, you know? Um, and there was a lot of derogatory comments made. Oh, she's not that good. And, but, you know, so anyway, then he sent it to me. Don't ask me why this is one of the things we are writing into the story of my life that will be on film. And which I still don't know the reasons everybody has a different opinion on it, you know? Um, so he sent it to me and uh, I got it on Christmas Day. Came to the hotel reception and I ran upstairs to play it thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to hear my family. My dad said, you know, it's Thanksgiving. And then I heard that. and I just went. Wow. Cried my eyes out and then turned the tape off and didn't play it again until years later when I found it again by mistake and I'd forgotten what it was. But. I don't know why he sent it. It could be for various reasons. Did you never ask him? This is the funniest part. I had many opportunity to ask him why, and I chose not to. Now, that's a real psychological thing for you. Why didn't I? Maybe I didn't want to hear the answer. Also, why didn't you burn it? I mean, if I got, no. I, I had something like that once from work. I worked at this place and they oh, also to keep me, it. and they sent me a goodbye card. And I thought, oh my God, why? I needed I- to keep that. No, no, no. I needed to keep that. I have it on CD now. No, that's important. That That's an important pivotal moment in your life. You know, I don't know why he did it. Other people have different opinions, maybe to spur me on, maybe to see that I'd hurt everybody by leaving. Who knows the reasons you can't. And I should have asked him, but I didn't. So that will be forever. 
in the cosmos and when it's portrayed in my film, I think I will, I would like to portray it ambiguously to let the audience make up their own mind. I don't want to put a stamp on it either way. I just want it to be there as is. And I've just realized that that's how I have to do it. I don't want an answer. Yeah. I want the audience to make their own mind. Just say it how it happened and let people do what they will with it. I mean, I've, one got, thing to go in, I've got to go in five more minutes because I've got another one coming okay. in. Just quickly then, first of all, just quickly about the, the end of that is where you talk about how you would have liked to have spent a few more years in Detroit when you were young in, in that house. But for me, that doesn't tally with what happened. You, do, you know what I mean? With the tape, with the jealousy of the family and all these sort of things. And I just wondered why. Why would you want to sort of have that again? I think I meant I... I... I left so young, that's what I mean. I left at 14, didn't leave completely, but we were on the road and I missed a lot of those carefree early years. And that's what I mean, that, that the house in Detroit and Gross Point where I grew up that I still call my own house. That was such a wonderful time before the band stuff. I meant before the band, the, oh. the, the childhood years, you know, I would have liked to stretch that out a little bit more. And then when I was gone, I was gone. I mean, I, I'm a gypsy. One, okay, I just want to talk quickly about today because the new music you're making with your son um, is very powerful and has a much more, obviously, because we're a different era than the, the, the early days of Susie Quattro, this has a, a, a much more powerful and modern um, thread to it. How easy or difficult was it to work with your son and to get to that point? Well, obviously everything takes a bit of time. Um, he had come to me like 218 or 217, been in band since he'd been 14. Uh, and he wanted to write, he showed me a couple of things. And I remember saying to him, you're not quite ready yet. He came back in 219, he just said, mom, I need to write with you now. So that meant to me, the way he said it, he's ready. So he showed me a few things. Uh, and I said to him, I can work with that. I like that. So we went in to the local studio and we started to make some demos, three songs we had written. And on the third demo, I turned to the two of them, the, the guys whose studio were using, Mike, and Richard was playing and I was playing. And I went, we're making an album. And everybody went, yeah. And all of a sudden it got really serious. And Richard got his feet wet with no control. And I said, I said, okay, now that we know we're making an album, Richard, you and I are working together for the first time. I don't want any limits. I don't want to try to shove a song this direction or that. Let's just write. So that's what we did. And the album was a huge success. The critical, critics loved it. Uh, then the company took up the option, which is the devil in me, which has the best critics of my entire career. I've never had critics like this. And Richard, at this point, because he got his confidence up in the first one, he said, Mom, I know exactly what this album should be. And you have to trust me. That's a big call. That's a big call. So there were a, a couple moments, you know, sure. A couple of bits and pieces here and there. Maybe we didn't see eye to eye, but gradually as we progressed in this, boy, did I trust him. But, and what he said was afterwards, he said, I wanted to make you feel the way you felt with that wonder and joy of when you first began. And you can hear it on the album. You know, sometimes he give me a riff and I think, what is this? And I play around with it and find the melody and I go, oh. So he's brought his generation of music against my 
experience in the business. And I have seen myself again fresh through his eyes. So I gave birth to him and he gave rebirth to me in the nicest possible way. And now we are a formidable writing team. We have a production company and he's found his feet through me. And I found my feet again through him. He wanted to put me back in the public eye and he, he managed to do that. So he's a talented boy. I didn't know how good he was. He gets it from his mum. I just want to say at the end, Susie Quattro, thank you for your amazing contribution to music, to my young teenage years in that uh, village down the road and to really to the type of person um, that you are full of energy and humor and looking to the future and it's been really lovely to talk to you and I wish you lots more success in the future. Thank you very much and I just have one parting comment for you. Forgive your father. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>